Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and the forthcoming Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question, and this time around, we're asking, how can we come back together again? Hi, welcome to How We Live Now. I'm currently raking leaves in my garden, so I thought I'd share the process with you. My next door neighbour has a beautiful, very mature ash tree that hangs over my garden. I love it. I'm so grateful for it. I hope she never cuts it down. And once a year in the autumn, it seems to just drop all of its leaves in one go on my garden. It's so funny. You turn around and everything's under this complete duvet of leaves. And it seems today to have dropped half of them. So I am raking them up and putting them over my garden, ready to mulch it, really, for the winter. I haven't got any plants in there at the moment. I'm working through a process with it. It's very difficult. I am not the world's greatest gardener and I always feel like I should be and the dog digs everything up anyway I've stripped it down to bare bones again and I'm planning another kind of a garden which probably I'll tell you about next year if it ever happens I'm feeling very sad with myself about it right now but this is good 
brushing some leaves over it ready for the winter, putting some nutrients into the soil. It won't do any harm at all. So I needn't feel too sad, I don't think. So today I have a fantastic podcast conversation for you with Lama Rod Owens, who is a Buddhist teacher who talks so eloquently about how we can liberate ourselves from many of the thought patterns we're fixed in. His most recent book is called Love and Rage, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring him onto this podcast, because anger, I think, is one of the huge issues for us in terms of keeping us apart right now. And what he had to say, I think, has closed a bit of a loop for me in many ways, that our anger isn't wrong, it isn't bad, it's a very rational response to challenging times and to times where conflict is perhaps inevitable. Anyway, maybe have a listen, I don't want to tell you too much about it, but I for one feel maybe a little bit comforted about the conflict we're in. I'm going to pick up some more leaves. I'll see you a bit later. Lama Rod Owens is an authorised Lama or teacher of the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism. He's also the co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love and Liberation, and the sole author of Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. Lama Rod, welcome so much. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. So this season we've been focusing on the question, how do we come back together again? Right. And you sprang to mind immediately for me because of your incredible work integrating rage and anger into our, I don't know, our practice as humans. Mm -hmm. But before we talk about that, I just wondered if we could touch briefly on your journey to becoming a Buddhist Lama, because I think that story is is actually really informative for for what you'll tell us about this. So how did you get to, to where you are now? What's the what's the pathway? Yeah. Well, you know, I started really just wanting to be free. And that's been a passion of mine since as long as I can remember. And so I started very young with um, community service projects and volunteering in church and the community. Um, mm. And then furthering um, that service work in middle school and high school, um, where I did, um, where, where I really engaged in a a wide range um, of issues yeah. from really substance abuse to sexuality mm. and um, sexual assault um, as well. And of course, that took me into college, university, where I continued to engage um, in those areas. After graduation, I moved into an activist community. And that's where I really began to experience um, what I identified at the time as severe clinical depression. Mm -hmm. And that really opened the door 
to getting curious about how to take care of that experience. You know, I tried therapy, um, nutrition, exercise, and so forth. Um, but what was really calling me was a deeper understanding of the mind and of the of our emotions and so forth. And so I started really just opening up to meditation. Mm. Of course, that led me deeper into developing a meditation practice and working with a local healer who supported my practice. But after a time, you know, I really began to feel a lot better. And I really started focusing more on the teachings of Buddhism, along with deepening my meditation practice. And after a bit, I realized that this was what my path was, because I was beginning to understand ultimate liberation, right? And that was, uh, how do we experience freedom from our thoughts and our emotions, Mm -hmm. and really how our thoughts and emotions inform how we perceive the phenomenal world, you know, and that I began to understand through the Buddhist teachings that I was already free, right? And that the labor was remembering that freedom. And I thought (laughs) it would be really powerful to link these teachings with social liberation teachings and and work. Um, And so I dedicated myself to the path of training to be a teacher, which required that I, you know, spend over three years in, in retreat, and silent retreat with a total of about five years um, living in monastic community as well. And that was my training. Um, and that, and after my training, I was authorized as a Lama. And Lama means teacher in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism. I'm so curious about loads of this. Um, mm-hmm. but what was it? What was it like to approach that initial three years of retreat? That mm-hmm. that to me sounds incredibly daunting. But yeah. but maybe if it's the pathway you're seeking, maybe it's it's not so much. Right. I mean, I knew I needed to do it. That I had to do it, and it was mm. this opportunity to divest from a lot of I don't know distraction and violence in the world. Right. right. I knew that I needed to do significant healing work by turning inward. And this was at the end of my 20s. So I spent the last three years of my 20s, in the beginning of my 30s, you know, in this Mm. retreat. So it was really a formative time for me to be doing this. Um, And I was really grateful to be ending, you know, my 20s, which were really chaotic. um, Yeah period for me, a decade for me, right? And this experience of just moving really deeply into into my internal world of mind and body. Yeah. Mm. And so, yeah, it felt daunting, but I knew that like this would pass, like everything passes, <laughs> you know, and that I would regret not having done this, but I would also, you know, having done it, look back and understand that this was probably one of the most important things I could ever do with my life. Mm. It's that real sense of of mission and and mm-hmm. sort of service. I think that that comes across, you know, from devoting your life to activism initially, and then to to kind of going into this greater, I don't know, greater commitment. I mean, com- right. complete commitment, absolute right. commitment to right. becoming a, a teacher. I mean, that comes from a really embedded sense of service. I yes. think. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it comes from really being serious about what you want to see happen in the world. Mm. And I think there mm. are a lot of people who are very serious <laughs> about <laughs> changing the world. And it's, you know, some of that labor is very violent and destructive, as, as we see over mm. and over again. And some of it is very positive and beneficial, you know, but you need the passion 
you know? And you have to use that passion to guide what you're willing to do, Mm. you know, to bring about the change you wish to see. And you you write in Love and Rage about the way that you realize that as a as a late teenager, I think, about your relationship with anger right. and how toxic that was becoming for you. Yeah. Right. Um, but also that there was an issue with holding anger that you yeah. that it was dangerous for you to express on the outside, that you were you were yeah. constantly having to suppress it in public so that you didn't look like an angry young man, angry young black man specifically. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I I think many of us experience different privileges around the expression of anger, right? And for Mm. those of us who are most oppressed, our anger is always read as violence or as threat against dominant cultures, right? And so I, of course, knew that at an early age, growing up Black in America. So for me, I think my anger really kind of turned into passive aggressiveness, right? Mm. Where I could hide my expression of anger. But it just, you know, by the time I got into my 20s and started doing this work, you know, around understanding my mind and body, I really began to understand that, like, it just wasn't a healthy expression of anger. Like, I needed to learn how to experience anger, right? Right. And to experience anger doesn't mean that I had to react to the anger. And I think this is, like, a really subtle instruction in in contemplative Mm. studies and definitely in love and rage where... I want people to understand that you can experience anger, but reacting to anger is a choice, right? right? And that we have to train to disrupt that habitual reactivity, right? Because if we're just habitually reacting to what comes up in terms of anger, then often it will be really violent, right? It could be really scary for people to see that. I see this all the time, you know? Um, But what I trained to do was to move from a space of reactivity into a space of responsiveness, Mm. you know? So I choose to respond to my anger now. And that's the way I take care of the anger. And of course, that's the way that I get to take care of the hurt beneath the anger, Yeah, because anger is, you're going to say this way better than me, and I'm about to phrase it very badly, but anger is like the emotion that wells up in response to things like hurt and dislocation and and loads of other sort of very anomic emotions that that are ongoing and that that are often so present in us, particularly when we're younger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you phrase that better than I did, though? Because I think I did a terrible job. (laughs) Well... Maybe another aspect of this, too, is that, like, yeah, I, you know, I think that we're all just deeply hurt. Mm. And we, we're not often taught how to take care of that hurt. And anger arises as this secondary emotion that's actually alerting us to the fact that we've been hurt, you know. Yeah. But we've forgotten about the hurt. We've been distracted from the hurt, and now we're just pissed off. <laughs> in that and being pissed off with no context as to why we're really pissed off. You know, we're not pissed off because someone's done something bad to us. Like that's really not why we're pissed off. We're pissed off because we've been hurt. We have to name that. I know it's a very subtle practice, mm-hmm. but like we can't assume 
that when we're talking about anger, that we're also equally talking about the hurt beneath the anger. Yeah. I just don't believe that we're doing that. You know? Well, hurt is a very like vulnerable thing to express, yeah. isn't it? Whereas yeah. anger is a little tougher um, right. and a little more defended. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a lot of energy, like, and that energy mm-hmm. makes us feel powerful, you know, because that anger arises out of a tension, right? And that tension mm-hmm. is, you know, arising between being hurt and wanting to take care of ourselves, but not knowing how to do it. So that tension is like a frustration, actually, you mm-hmm. know, and then we get swept up in the tension and frustration. And that's when we start experiencing anger. And we might learn an angry response from other people around mm-hmm. us as well. Like that that might be what we're educated to do, like the reaction that is. I mean, I, I think about this a lot on social media that actually we're kind of almost directly told that anger is the correct emotion. And if you're not enacting anger, then you're not engaged enough somehow. It often strikes yeah. me that that's actually quite a dangerous idea to put exactly. about because... Because of the very toxic effect of anger on the body, I guess. Yeah, yeah mm. absolutely. Absolutely. Like that our reactivity to the anger is overvalued. Yeah. You know, in, in many cultures. And what we're what our, you know, really what our activism is is saying that like actually, you know, the real work is learning how to use anger to show us we're hurt has happened where boundaries have been crossed and to to hold people accountable um, and to disrupt further violence not through reacting to the anger but by embodying love i am disrupting whatever harm that's happening not because i want you or others to hurt I, i i want people to be free from suffering and this is what i'm choosing to do to free people from suffering including myself in this moment. And that changes. That's a response to anger when we're choosing love to actually respond to what's happening in the moment that we perceive um, as being, you know, part of our experience of being hurt. So how do we practice that in kind of a, a real situation? I mean, yeah. uh, say that, say we've become incredibly angry with a member of our family for saying things that we think is offensive or that sorry i mean that that's mm-hmm. a kind of passive aggressive way of saying it just say, oh. for saying things that are offensive right. <laughs> that are right, objectively right. offensive yeah. um anger rises up in us yes and i think for lots of us we either react very strongly in that moment or we exit the situation as quickly as we can and both of those mm-hmm. I don't know, both of those responses create a situation that's very hard to go back on. Um, And I guess what's left when we've left that room is that sense of hurt because of love, because specifically someone we love has said something that we find violently offensive. What's the practice? What do we do? Right. Well, you know, when we're talking about working with really strong emotional energies like anger, you know, the practice in the moment has to be supported by a practice that we're engaging in when we're not in that moment, mm. right? So a lot of people, like, it's it's really not the case where you can just do these really advanced practices in the moment without having practiced it or without having created, you know, space where you're regularly, like, doing you know, these supportive practices so that when you show up in the moment, you have, you've trained, you know, 
to to use these methods, right? And so in the moment, you know, my my ethic in any moment is to reduce harm, mm-hmm. right? And to to experience safety and wellness. That's what I'm trying to do in every moment. So I'm, if I'm in a situation where there's a lot of anger, maybe I've been triggered or maybe I've triggered someone else. If I can't figure out how to reduce the harm or the escalation, then we have to walk away. Right. And that's called, you know, that's boundaries, right? Yeah. Walking away is a boundary that we create to reduce the harm that may continue to happen. Right. Right. And I know people, you know, we have this idea that we have to stay there and we have to engage. <laughs> yeah. Juke you out know? kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I want to win this argument. Like, you, like, I have to hold someone accountable. But if you can't do that from a place of space and love, then more than likely you will actually be expressing violence. Mm. You know, mm. and that's not going to help, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, sure. So this is why, you know, I encourage people to develop a practice, you know, that they're doing something every day, a couple of minutes of practice a day where they're working with meditation, they're learning how to experience anger, right? And so that they can remember what that experience is in the moment where anger is really awakening for them, right? Yeah. You know, but again, it's it's the hurt, right? And so, so much of the practice before getting to that moment is actually learning how to experience our hurt and our brokenheartedness. And, and you know, I often say in my work, it's really learning how to mourn, right? Mm. The discomfort. Mm. And mourning is just, a, for me, in my work, it's a method that I engage in to really experience, you know, the discomfort of sadness or despair or, what, or however hurt is arising for me in the moment. Yeah. Right. And to learn how to experience and to let it go. It's something that comes up a lot in my work. Like I, I've written a lot about how meditation has helped me to, well, to actually deal with a, a whole kind of lifelong pattern of having suicidal thoughts, right. uh, you know, that, that were always um, my default response to absolutely every situation, honestly. And I, I found that what meditation gave me was not the ability to escape, but the ability to sit mm-hmm. with those thoughts and to almost enter a space where they were present that was a place where I could meet them and meet them as separate from myself, um, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Right. And I, like nothing else really ever worked for me except for coming back over and over again to that mm-hmm. as well, like not... Mm-hmm. Not solving it, not curing it, but entering into a, a a sort of lifelong commitment to to working with it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I I just know that loads of people listening now will be saying yes, but I can't do that because I can't sit with those feelings; they're too unbearable, or I can't sit still, mm-hmm. or I I mean I know you'll hear this mm-hmm. like all the time. Tell me your response to that. Tell speak mm-hmm. to those people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, well, first of all, like you don't have to sit still, right? Mm. Because, you know, when we talk about meditation practice, meditation practice isn't just about just sitting still and quietly in a corner somewhere, right? You know, like we think about movement practice, you know, and walking and yoga and asana, like these are practices that we we can use to channel this energy that feels really difficult to just hold, 
right? Mm. And when I use the term hold, what I mean is that we're not reacting to what's arising, but we're, we're feeling, we're experiencing what's arising, right? And that's, that, that experience is going to be completely different for everyone because we all have different levels of trauma, you know? Um, and so we have to rely on supportive practices and methods to support experiencing, right? You know? So again, mm -hmm. movement is one of those practices. Um, in Love and Rage, I talk about a practice called the Seven Homecomings, which mm -hmm. is just this experience of feeling love and care, right? Just feeling that like I am not alone as, I'm exp as I am attempting to experience this really, you know, uncomfortable energy. You know, the earth is one of those things that we take refuge in, that we connect to as a supportive element uh, in our practice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, really practice is about starting somewhere, right? I think that many of us have it in our minds that if we don't do it perfectly the first time, then it's not worth doing. And that's not where practice <laughs> is, right? Yeah. So I encourage yeah. people to think about something that they've learned that has taken time to learn, <laughs> you know, and the kind of practice you know, that we've had to develop to learn something. And that's the same kind of effort that we put into working with our minds and thoughts and emotions. It's like, you know, we do a little bit as much as possible, right? Mm. And we chip the, away at it. Exactly. You chip away yeah. at it. Like, and again, like the moment is not the best time to, to just start practicing. You know, I'm not saying that, like, you won't get lucky. I'm not saying that there's something that won't be, that, you know, won't be beneficial. But I'm just saying that if you really want to see transformation happen in the moment, you have to start thinking before the moment happens. You have to start, I guess, you know, you have to start planning and strategizing. Mm. You know? Laying down a foundation. Exactly. You know, mm. so much of my training has been just imagining how to practice, you know, in certain situations, right? Yeah. And then bringing that, that imagination and that material into a practice where I'm just working with it. It's like role-playing, mm. you know? How am I going to show up? How am I going to practice if this thing happens? Mm. You know? We'll be back to the conversation in just a moment. But first of all, we know how hard it is to find new podcasts, and we thought you might love this one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
If you're the type of person who's constantly searching for your own path to a satisfying and fulfilling life, check out Reconsidering, a podcast that features some amazing thinkers who've gone deep on life's most challenging questions. Co-hosts Meredith Black, Bob Baxley, and me, Aaron Walter, speak with New York Times bestselling authors like Dan Pink about the power of regret to help you make smarter decisions, and Oliver Berkman about the absurd brevity of life, just 4,000 weeks on average, and how to let go of what doesn't matter so you can focus on what does. If you're looking for the best place to dive into reconsidering, we humbly suggest starting with episode eight, in which we talked with Catherine May about the power of rejuvenation in the winter passages of life. We hope you'll check out Reconsidering, the show about living a satisfying life filled with meaning. You'll find Reconsidering anywhere you subscribe to finer podcasts or by visiting reconsidering.org. It's interesting, actually, for me that I think what I came to realize was that the biggest pain for me was being caused by trying not to feel those difficult feelings, that actually feeling them was much easier than constantly trying to escape them. But also that my brain was trying to rehearse better ways to do things. And I was seeing that as catastrophizing. And I I actually think it's a it's a sort of it's a process of, of exactly what you're talking about. You know, your brain will go to these worst case scenarios. And actually, that gives you an opportunity to think, Okay, so what happens then? What do I do? You know, that if if this arises, how do I meet it? Right. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. We have to be willing to go there, you know. And I think that's how we prepare ourselves for the future. I know many people are really afraid of the future, but if we think about it and strategize, right, I think it becomes a different experience, you know. Mm -hmm. But it is, again, you know, like, I just want to always emphasize that, yeah, this is hard, right? These. You know, when we start working with something like anger or rage or even despair and hopelessness, these are really intense energies, you know, like anger can make us feel really powerful, but it's like trying to contain a tidal wave sometimes, you know, whereas on the, you know, these kind of more root primary emotions like sadness, right, or despair, like those can feel really draining, but there's still yeah. anger and sadness are still very strong emotions, right? That we have to like offer different practices to, mm. you know? but again, a piece at a time, one piece at a time, right? Um, yeah. One one piece of advice or practice instruction that I often give is for people to practice in times where sadness or anger seems to be really at its like weakest, mm. in, like strength, like. And this happens throughout the day. Like, you know, sometimes I'm like, like today I went to the store and they were out of something, something really basic, you know, (laughs) and I was frustrated, you know. And so that becomes a time to practice. Like I wasn't like enraged. I was just kind of annoyed. (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's so that's an entry into trying to experience like an emotion that's not too strong. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, it didn't ruin my day. It was just the moment of like expecting to get something, but not getting it. And I was like, fine, whatever, you know, I'll get something else, you know? And then I was able to practice and to hold space to experience that frustration, just to let it go and said, you know, oh, like this isn't a big deal, 
I'm like, mm-hmm. who cares? Like, this is not, I'm, you know, not going to be consumed by this because it's really not consequential or it's inconsequential right now for me. Yeah. Right. And so start doing that more and more. And then you build the capacity to work with stronger experiences of these emotions when they come up. Mm, that makes so much sense. And what so often comes up for me in your work is this sense of how hard it is to live in yeah. this flesh, you know, yeah. how unpleasant it often is and how often we rail against it and hate our physical bodies yeah. and struggle to accept them. I think it's so refreshing to talk about that, honestly, you yeah. know, from a, a spiritual position, like how difficult this embodied life is right right and that's the struggle for all of us like we we're occupying bodies that have the capacity to experience sensations right Mm. you know and those sensations can be quite painful yeah and so this is why i think developing for me developing a meditation practice was like life-saving right because i needed a method to like deal with the fact that like my body can be really frustrating, yeah. you know, and how my body is perceived and how boundaries are crossed with my body, all of that. Like I needed a way to take care of kind of these daily traumas, you mm-hmm. know, that I am accumulating, you know, how to experience and release continually over and over and over again. And then in that releasing, connect to the joy, right? And part of the joy is understanding that there are ways that I can experience pleasure in the body. Right? Mm. But, you know, even from a more like Orthodox Buddhist context, like so much of my joy is derived from understanding that I am not my body, right? That my consciousness or my soul, right, is this expression of intelligent energy that transcends you know, these experiences of suffering, right? And that's what I train to connect to more and more, deeper and deeper every day, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like my ultimate self, right? And holding all of that together and just saying, oh, you know, I have this body, this physical body and all these sensations, but I will have to die, right? And I will get a chance to connect to my ultimate self, which is an expression that is that transcends suffering. Mm. I know? read a really beautiful thing today that I think you're like too, which was from the the monk Bede writing in the mm. medieval period, and he was writing about the introduction of Christianity to the UK, right. and he described life without a spiritual framework. Mm. Uh, he compared it to a a sparrow flying into a great hall from from winter outside and he briefly flits through this beautiful warm hall and then out into another winter and he said that's all that human life is if you don't have a sense of the before and the after just a brief period flitting through a warm hall before you hit the next winter i just thought that was so beautiful i don't know how that really fits but i just wanted to share it (laughs) that's really gorgeous yeah it's gorgeous. We're all that sparrow at the moment, and we're still finding the hall difficult, even though we don't understand the winters either side. Yeah. Yeah, because we get wrapped up in the moment, right? Mm. You know, and we lose this connection to what's coming next. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's so important to talk about joy when we talk about suffering. You know, on one hand, we're so angry yeah. and frustrated at the sort of perceived other side of of humanity who we're feeling constant opposition to. But at the at the same time, I think we don't spend enough time talking about our joy yes. and talking about what is worth keeping. Like what's the what's the stuff we treasure? Like I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of autism because, you know, like quite often I'll come online, mm. I did it last week and talked about a really difficult part of my experience as an autistic person in the yeah. world and how overwhelming I find everything. And I'm so, so conscious that that needs to be counterbalanced with the sheer joy that I get from my mm. different mode of perception. And I, I'm feeling an increasing responsibility to make sure that my advocacy touches on that at least as much as as the problems because otherwise I think we problematize ourselves mm -hmm. to ourselves I I just I wondered if that was something that you respond to too yeah like it's it's pathologizing ourselves as I often say mm. you know that like there's something inherently like wrong or there's something that I can't overcome um yeah. and this is why like kind of the self-compassion and self-love is really important. You know, this is something I offer myself when I begin to feel too critical, you know, or when mm. I feel that like I am trying to over-assimilate into situations that were not created for my well-being. Mm. They weren't designed to be welcoming to you. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what it means to survive in dominant cultures. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you find yourself really not aligning, you know, with the expression of the dominant culture, like we find ourselves really struggling to be well. And that's where for, for me, again, the kindness, the gentleness, where I'm saying, you know what, it's okay, I'm not the only one, right? And what I've done, what I, and what I committed to doing is, you know, also working to create spaces uh, and places for people like me to feel like they belong. Yeah. You know, and this is why I show up in the way that I show up because I want people to really understand that, you know, you don't have to be a certain way to practice spirituality, right? To practice a path, mm. you know, like you, it's you about can, being you yourself. You can bring yourself to it. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the idea of moral injury. Mm-hmm. Because I I feel like that's coming up a lot at the moment. Um, I, it's quite a new term for me. I have to admit, mm -hmm. I think I've come to it very late. But mm -hmm. we are in morally injurious times, I think. Yeah. Um, and for so many people, just showing up at their work is becoming a moral injury. You know, I'm right. thinking about in the UK, like the people working in the NHS at mm. the moment who are unable to like give the the level of service that they know that they need to give that they know people need from them and they there's nothing they can do about that because in an underfunded system that's vastly understaffed you're paralyzed as a as a person you're you're just covering the basics and then facing your own burnout right is that a rising thing or is that kind of a constant throughout the world that that will always be there yeah well, yeah, to to an extent, like there's always going to be some some experience of suffering, mm -hmm. right? And I think, you know, when, when we talk about moral injury, you know, moral injury comes from the ways in which we have these expectations or we have these beliefs that get disrupted, 
And that can result in a lot of struggle to trust, right? To, to be inspired to connect, you know, mm. after the thing that you've been really trusting and connecting to has revealed itself not to be what it is. And one, we work with that just by always being honest about what's happening instead of like always trying to delude ourselves or tell ourselves narratives to make ourselves feel better, mm. you know? Like, I'm not always, I walk into situations, I go into situations or connect to situations with a lot of openness um, yeah. and curiosity, you know, and that's been really helpful for me, right? And to know that, like, we're struggling in human systems and human systems are really impacted by a lack of clarity. Mm. We don't get to really read them. Right. In the way that right. we'd like to, at least. <laughs> or the way I'd like to, certainly. Yeah. This, for me, is linking to the, the part in your book where you talk about learning to grieve for things that aren't necessarily people, you know, for ideas or for things that you have to let go. You, you give the example of learning that one of the teachers that meant a lot to you yeah. uh, turned out to have been abusive to other people. And the, the complex process of, of coming to terms with that like grief is is a bigger thing than just a response to death i think yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well grief grief is about change mm. right you know something's changed and now this my sense of self is trying to figure out what it is again you know because yeah. our sense of self or our egos use the world around us and the illusion of stability to create a sense of self an identity, right? Mm -hmm. So if something changes, then the ego is a little bit disrupted, right? And we feel that pain, you know? Who am I now? Like now that this person or the situation that I've relied on for so long has shifted, you know, has gone, has disappeared, or whatever it may be, right? Something's changed. And that's always going to mm -hmm. be the case. Everything is always changing. And it's a process to deal with it. Once yeah. again, it's another thing that is not solved in one simple step. If only you could get it right. Yeah. <laughs> and that leads me finally to ask you about the apocalypse, which mm -hmm. I <laughs> right. is maybe the, not the most cheerful subject, but you you address the idea of apocalypse in your book and and talk about it as a, as a huge societal change, and you engage with the idea that perhaps the massive disruption we're experiencing and feeling at the moment so intensely is part of a necessary process of change that, you know, perhaps this is almost what has to happen. Right. Can you, can you outline how Buddhists would see the idea of apocalypse first of all, maybe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the idea of apocalypse is, you know, I'm, influenced by, you know, theology's understanding of apocalypse, which is, which it means unveiling, you know, mm. it means truth telling, right? And so what we're experiencing is our lack of capacity to avoid the truth any longer, right? Yeah. You know, the truth about the climate, the world and politics and so forth, capitalism included, all of that. We can no longer distract ourselves because these systems and these situations are no longer responding to our manipulation of them, you know. Mm. And so things collapse, right? When 
we understand that they're not helping us, but they're creating more suffering, then there's a tension that arises for us. You know, and often what I see in terms of this tension is like, we're so desperately fixated on these systems that at the same time are being revealed that they're not actually helping us at the same time. Mm. So we're like really... We're in this intense, I don't know, this holding, this gripping, this like death grip, you know, that we know that something isn't helping us, but we're desperately holding on to it. And that's going to be nothing but pain for a lot of us. Yeah. And so that's what people are experiencing, really, like, just like, like, how do I let go of this and then turn into a future that really I'm not so sure about? Mm. I think we grew up expecting like a kind of upward striding of society, like things mm-hmm. getting better. And we're facing a very different reality. And I, I do wonder if a lot of our conflict comes from different levels of acceptance of that right. reality. It right. seems to me that that's often what we're fighting over. Yeah. yeah. Particularly, you know, we're thinking about fake news a lot and, and yeah. you know, <laughs> that, that idea that we're we're not in a truth-telling age but as I'm speaking to you I'm thinking well maybe maybe that's just a response from some people who find this too painful to right. face this change that right. seems so inevitable to right. me right you know mm. it's it's the narrative that we told ourselves coming into conflict with the the truth of things and it's hard like it's hard to reconcile yeah right you know and so Again, like, you know, we're talking about grief and the ego. This is the same thing. Like, I've built this this sense of self and identity based on these systems. And now these systems are disrupted. And so I feel disrupted because I'm so so Mm self-identified with these systems. You know, I'm so self-identified with capitalism and the ways that it creates hierarchy and status and privileges. You know, and once that gets disrupted, who am I without you know, this, the status that capitalism mm. offers me. And a, a, I think also like a, a whole patterning for your life that, that we were offered within the capitalist system, that now we are forced to unpick. Like yeah. it, that patterning wouldn't even work for us anymore, not in terms of work or gender or sexuality or wellness like being actually healthy within the the system that we were offered is it, it seems to me impossible and so we're confronting this enormous uncertainty and on one hand that's an opportunity and it's exciting and it's a, a way that we could produce joy again but on the other it's absolutely starkly terrifying yeah and i i think some people have got greater capacity to face that uncertainty than others yeah, exactly, right? And that that capacity to hold that uncertainty, it comes with practice, mm. right? It's like I have to do something to begin working with the fear, you know, the yeah. fear of the future, the fear of like, who will I become when I let go of these old ways of being? Mm. Thank you. I'm going to stop there because that was just, <laughs> that was just wonderful. And yeah, I think it's so so lovely to take us all into a place of uncertainty. I don't think we do anyone any favours if we're yeah. like mm-hmm. peddling more false certainties. Like right. it's, this is about developing a, a, a skill set for the apocalypse mm-hmm. that we are in 
Exactly. It's quite a painful thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you come from histories and cultures and, and ancestries of struggle, then this is just like another thing, you know, that we do. Like we struggle. If we want to see something different, then we struggle to make it happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of us don't understand what that means. We may understand what individual struggle may be like, but some of us don't really understand collective struggle, right? Yeah. And what yeah. our communities and families and cultures have had to do to survive and to thrive in dominant cultures. So, I mean, I guess that that's like a, a new generation of leaders rising, mm. you know, who through suffering and through generational trauma have actually got the skill set for this age. Right, right. No wonder some people are feeling so threatened. Mm-hmm. And other people <laughs> are feeling really excited. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. That mm-hmm. was just a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we could connect. It's, I know it's really difficult. Oh, absolutely. Still raking leaves. (laughs) I love that sound of the leaves swishing along the ground. And as I've been raking, I've just found the remnants of the summer. I've just found a drinking glass with the lime garnish still in it. That was obviously a nice little drink I had at the bottom of the garden in easier times. It's all very wet here today. And I've also just found the remnants of last winter too. I found my Christmas tree stand and I found a sledge, which is optimistic, seeing as we never get any proper snow here. I think I like to keep one just in case, you know. One day, one day it will work. I think I have used it once. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I feel like it was really nourishing for me. I have so enjoyed recording this podcast season. I've loved the experience, I guess, of focusing around a question and of having that really clear direction to to go in. But I think what I love most of all is to be in contact with these extraordinary thinkers, these people who are so wise and so clever, and being able to ask them what's on my mind. And unlike a lot of other podcasters now, I still always record with video off. I know that it's a big thing to be able to put your podcasts on YouTube and things like that. And I do respect that. But for me, the quality of those conversations that we have when the video's turned off is just so different. Perhaps because I'm an eye contact avoider, that might be true. But also because there's something very intimate about two voices speaking in the dark together. And it changes the experience for me. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope to hear your views. And I'll see you very soon. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for being here to explore how we live now. 
To share your comments, questions or answers, go to howwelivenow.info and write a message or record a voicemail. We'll be compiling the best ones into an end-of-season special. How We Live Now is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. For updates, show notes and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at catherinemay.substack.com. And finally, please consider pre-ordering my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.